Well, good morning, church. I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Uh, this morning, we're going to consider the first 32 verses of Mark 15, uh, getting all the way through the middle part of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, as you find your place in your Bible and get yourself settled, I want to talk about what's happening this week uh, as we celebrate Easter uh, together, we always have some unique service opportunities for our church to gather during Easter week. And so let me tell you of two of those. And then at the end of the service, I'm going to give you some specific instructions for next Sunday morning. This Wednesday night, we will celebrate um, the Lord's Supper through a, a service of reflection. On Wednesday at 6.30, we will gather in this room together and using Psalm 22, which uh, I have preached before, I call it the Psalm of the Cross, because hundreds of years before Jesus went to the cross, the psalmist wrote about the suffering of our Lord. And we will use that to focus our minds on the cross, to focus our hearts on the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus together. Uh, this is open for members and visitors alike to come to the Lord's table. We will have preschool uh, that day, but not children or students. So everybody, children and up, will gather in here on Wednesday night at 6.30. I hope you can join us for that. And then next Sunday morning, not our Easter service, not our resurrection service, but before that, at 6.45, for those of you that just like getting up early, there's going to be a sunrise service. Pastor Jay is going to be hosting this uh, out in the picnic area. It's going to we're gonna, they're going to sing some hymns, and he's going to talk about the resurrection that morning. Um, if you do come to that, I would also encourage you to join us for the gathered body of Christ next Sunday morning at 930. Uh, there will be a light continental breakfast that follows that, so you could just stay all the way through if you would like, uh, or you could go home and return at 930. So Easter week communion service at 630 this Wednesday. And then a sunrise service out in the picnic area at 6.45 one week in the morning, one week from today. A sunset service seems a whole lot better to me, but some of you would love to see the sunrise on Easter. So please come and join Pastor Jay, and then I will see you at 9.30. Will you stand with me as we consider God's word this morning for the sake of time? Because we have 32 verses, just going to read the first five. Mark records for us here at the beginning of chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you this morning for the gathered body of believers, for our opportunity to encourage one another as we have sang towards you, worship and praise from our hearts collectively instructing one another in sound doctrine and biblical truth. And now, God, as we come to a time in your word, we pray that you would continue to instruct us, that we together would grow in Christ's likeness because 
we understand the truth from your word that is for us, your church. Father, would you help us to see Jesus for he, who he truly is this morning, a king who stood condemned in our place. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is entitled, The, king, the Condemned King. Today in, on the church calendar is known as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day that, is, that marks, the, marks Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Mark 11 records this event for us. And in our series in Mark, a couple of months ago, I preached a sermon on Jesus' triumphal entry. It's interesting, though, that on this Palm Sunday, we will consider these verses from Mark 15 because there is a correlation between the two. In Mark chapter 11, coming into the week of Passover, Jesus enters into Jerusalem as a king. Mark tells us as a part of that story, starting in verse 7, that they brought the colt to Jesus and threw cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, which is the cry of the crowd around Jesus and the cry of the saints of God on Palm Sunday comes from Psalm 118, where the people of God in the Old Testament cried, save us, we pray. That is what Hosanna means. Save us, we pray. They worshiped Jesus on the road into Jerusalem, spreading their cloaks and branches in front of him, worshiping him as a coming king not understanding what the king would do to save them. Those cries of save us, we pray, mere days later, turn into cries as we will see in Mark 15 of crucify him, crucify him. But here's what we must understand. The king, Jesus, needed to suffer and die by the hands of sinful man so that our king could save us. Mark 15 helps us to rightly understand who King Jesus truly is, who stood condemned in our place. Within these 32 verses of Mark 15, six times Jesus is referred to as king, five times as king of the Jews and one final time as king of Israel. In every case, mocking him. In every case, taking the cry of the crowd on Palm Sunday and turning it on its head, mocking Jesus failing to recognize what we profess to still be true today, and that is that he is king, a king that stood condemned 
in my place and in yours so that the cry, Hosanna, save us, we pray, could be answered on our behalf. So let us see how now through these verses in Mark 15. First, the king stood trial in our place. Here in these verses that we have already read, Jesus is transitioned from a trial by night in front of a portion of the Sanhedrin to a trial before the Roman authority. As the Sanhedrin delivers Jesus up, that small group, whoever was made of that inner circle of the high priest uh, calling by night to come and, trial Je- come and try Jesus. They consult all of the elders and scribes. So now the whole council is brought together in Mark 15. And quickly they turn Jesus over early in the morning, Mark tells us. He tells us that it happens early in the morning and that the context of Mark's uh, audience matters to us on multiple occasions in Mark 15. And here it matters because Mark is writing to Christians in Rome And Romans understood that Roman authorities didn't do anything past about mid-morning. That after about mid-morning, they gave themselves to leisure for the rest of the day. So if you wanted a Roman official to do something for you, it needed to happen in the morning. And so the Sanhedrin made sure they were first in line, taking Jesus after his trial before the collection of the Sanhedrin to Pilate. Pilate was the governor, we'll just use that term, there were other terms that they would use, but for our minds, we need to think of him as a governor, appointed by Rome over a section of what we would know as Israel, as Judea, the southern and middle section of Israel. Jerusalem was not his home, he was not Jewish, and he did not even live in Jerusalem year-round. He would have lived in a beautiful port city known as Caesarea by the Sea, But being the governor of Judea, he would go and stay in Jerusalem during the feast as really a reminder of who was in charge. And Pilate, so because Pilate would be found in Jerusalem and it would be Pilate who would need to put Jesus to death, the Sanhedrin bring Jesus before him. And he asks Jesus a simple question. Are you the king of of the Jews. Maybe Pilate had heard of Jesus's triumphal entry mere days before where the crowd cried Hosanna to him. Maybe Pilate had heard of Jesus teaching day after day in the temple and great crowds coming to him. But Pilate asks a very simple question. Are you placing yourself as a king of these people? The man who had been appointed as governor by the king of Rome now asks, are you the king? And Jesus answers him, you have said so. Now, if we could, I want us for a moment just to go back to Mark 14 to see the question that the Sanhedrin, the high priest, asks Jesus during his midnight trial. Mark tells us there in verses 61 and 62 that Jesus remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
twice during his two trials, Jesus gives answer in the gospel of Mark, one to the high priest and one to Pilate. In both cases, Jesus answers their rhetorical statements about who Jesus is in the affirmative. Jesus never answers the false accusations, but he does affirm that which is true. In Mark 14, when the high priest asks him, are you the Messiah, are you the Christ, and are you the Son of God, Jesus says, I am, because it is true. Now Pilate asking him, are you the king of the Jews, Jesus here again answers, I am. You have said it is so. Because Jesus is the king, not the kind of king that they were expecting on Palm Sunday, but he is the king, not only of the Jews, but of the universe. He is the son of man, seated at the right hand of power, who will come in the clouds of heaven. He is the Messiah of God, sent to redeem mankind. Jesus is who? The high priest? And the Roman authority say he is king, Messiah, son of God. And as the trial continues in Mark 15, Jesus once again is falsely accused, yet keeps his mouth shut. In verse 3, and chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Just as Jesus had done in Mark 14, when witness after witness, false witness after false witness are brought before this midnight trial in the Sanhedrin, Jesus remains silent in the face of false accusations. He feels no need to justify what people are saying about him falsely. And it is probably some of those same witnesses, or at least the testimony of some of those witnesses, that these members of the Sanhedrin communicate to Pilate. Here, are all, here is all of the evidence that we have against Jesus. And they stack it one on the next. And Pilate says, are you not going to argue against this? Are you not going to have anything to say about these accusations they bring? But Jesus gave no answer. Now, we saw in chapter 14 why Jesus gave no answer. Let me remind you here in chapter 15, because this was what the prophets had said the Messiah would do, that he would give no answer. That in Isaiah chapter 53, we're told that like a lamb led to the slaughter, right? He did not open his mouth. Jesus never opened his mouth in defense of the false accusations. Whether that false accusations was, against, was before the Jewish authority in the Sanhedrin or against the Roman authority before Pilate, it was only the truth that Jesus affirmed. I am the king. I am the Messiah. I am the son of God. All of this other stuff, I don't need to address any of these other things because they are not true. And Jesus, the king, stands trial not once but twice Overnight and in the morning, who had done no wrong, the one who had done no wrong, the one who had done no evil, now stood trial before wicked, evil men so that we 
would not have to stand trial before holy God. Let's think before we move on what the king is doing in our place. In every one of these sections, I want you to see, visualize the king in our place. Because in every one of these sections, Jesus is going to be called king. The king stands before an appointed governor. Think about that for a moment. A governor is lesser than, in a Roman system, the governor of Judea, which, by the way, wasn't all of that great of a position, okay? There would be better places that the, there would be better places you could serve Rome as a governor. But here's Pilate appointed by the Roman emperor to be governor of Judea, and Jesus goes and stands before him. Would a king ever stand trial before a governor? No. Kings appoint governors, not the other way around. And yet here stands the king in front of a governor. Why? Because he was doing it in our place. Not because he had done anything worthy of this trial, worthy of this condemnation, but because we would one day stand before Holy God, if Jesus had not stood trial before wicked men for us, Jesus goes to trial, my friend, for you. Number two, the king exchanged in our place. Look with me in verses six through the first part of 15. Now at the feast, he used to release release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the, in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he, used to, as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd and to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. The trial comes to a swift end. We are not sure, we're not told in the text exactly why Pilate concocts this scheme of attempting to release Jesus during this customary portion of the feast that, that Roman governors could release prisoners anytime they wanted to. And it was a custom throughout Rome that particularly during important cultural moments that governors would do this. And, and so Pilate, having the ability to clear all of the prisons if he wants, puts before the people a murderer, an insurrectionist, Barabbas, or Jesus. Who do you want? Who do you want? And the crowd chooses Jesus and thereby condemning Jesus to receive the sentence of death that was due another. But let's consider for a moment this man Barabbas. Appearing only here, we're not sure who he murdered or when his insurrection was, but we do know this was an infamous person. He was known to the crowd. It's interesting to note that his name, Barabbas, means son of the father. That's his name, son of the father. Now, 
Mark has already told us in his opening line of his gospel narrative that he was telling the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we've known from the beginning that we're following the story of the Son of God. And here, at the end of his trial before Pilate, Pilate offers to the crowd to either release the Son of the Father or the Son of God. Which do you want? And the crowd, stirred up by the high priest, cries, crucify him, not of Barabbas, but of Jesus. They choose the murdering insurrectionist over their own rightful king and messiah. But here's what we should see here as we consider this great exchange that Jesus taking the place of a wicked sinner like Barabbas, we should see our own substitution. Because here in these verses is a physical exchange for a sinner, for the Son of God, and a picture of us of what is known as substitutionary atonement. This is what we celebrate when we recognize, when we see the cross, that one who did not deserve this punishment took it in the place of the one who did. Often, we will read these verses and we will, through some level of humility, see ourselves in the crowd crying, crucify him, crucify him. We'll see ourselves on one day shouting Hosanna and on another shouting crucify him. But I would put before you this morning, my friends, that we should not see ourselves as the crowd crying crucify him, but we should see ourselves as Barabbas, the one deserving death, the murdering insurrectionist, the one who have offended a holy God and the one for whom King Jesus took our place, our true place in this story is the one who deserved death. And yet King Jesus stands in our place. It is this truth that Peter affirms in 1 Peter 3 when he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Jesus died in our place. The one who did not deserve it. Every one of us deserves it. Now, you, you may object to this for a moment. You may not believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin right now and be sitting in this room because somebody brought you and you may be thinking, who, do you, who are you to say this of me? I've never murdered anyone. I've never done the kinds of things this Barabbas that you're talking about would have done. Oh, but hear me, friend, you have. You have offended a holy and righteous God by every act in your life. You have hated, you've stolen. You have harbored in your hearts sins that you are unwilling to speak out loud. You and I, I'm not just accusing you of this. I too am Barabbas. We are in this story. And Jesus silently and willingly takes our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. 
Oh, what an exchange is made on this day as the people are offered the son of the father or the son of God. And they unknowingly choose the son of the father, condemning to death the son of God in their place and in ours. Number three, the king suffered in our place. Look at the end of verse 15. It tells us that after having scourged Jesus, he was delivered to be crucified. There is a lot wrapped up in these short little words and having scourged Jesus. Here in these words, Mark tells us that Jesus suffered excruciating physical torment. Scourging was one of the options for what was known as flagellation. Flagellation was beating. And there were multiple levels of beating. There were different things that they could beat you with. Mark telling us that Jesus was scourged tells us exactly how Jesus was beaten. This punishment was so bad that it was reserved only for non-Roman citizens. Citizens of Rome, unless under very specific circumstances, could not be scourged like this. The the Senate in Rome actually suggested that Nero be beaten in this way, but then he even wasn't. So so it was only for non-citizens of Rome because the torment was so bad. We often conflate Paul's writing about being whipped by the Jews in 1 Corinthians where he talks about 40 minus 1 with what Jesus suffered, but it's not the same thing. Only Romans would scourge. And the Jewish 39 lashes was nothing compared to the Roman scourging because Rome had no limit to the number of times that a person could be scourged. It was far more brutal. The whip that would have been used on Jesus known as a scourge was a multi-headed leather whip with bits of bone and lead woven into the end. It was intended to mutilate and even kill. Those being scourged were stripped naked, tied to a post, and often beaten to death. Historians write of this punishment in in excruciating detail that I will not provide for you, but just know this. It, It wasn't a few lashes that Jesus took on immense physical torment in your place. And yet Mark does not focus on this. Mark dedicates only four words to it. He just simply tells us that it happened. And then he emphasized something far greater. Mark emphasizes the derision and ridicule of Jesus. The cruel mockery that he suffers. Consider verses 16 through 20. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. So after beating Jesus in a way that we could hardly imagine, torn and broken, flesh exposed, likely down to the bone and parts. Now, 
the Roman soldiers, the entire battalion, this gang of bullies comes around Jesus. And look what they do. They mock him as a king, putting on him a purple cloak. Kings wore purple forcing on his head a twisted crown of thorns because kings wore crowns, and then bowing to him and twisting the way that Caesar would be worshipped, they worship Jesus, mockingly saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they strike him on the head with a reed and spit on him and mockingly worship him, kneeling down before him. But just as the high priest had done the night before, And Pilate had done that morning, the soldiers unknowingly acknowledged both in word and deed the true nature of Jesus. Jesus is worthy of a purple robe. Jesus is worthy of a crown. Jesus is worthy of kneeling before him and hailing him as the king of the universe. He is worthy. Their words are mocking, but they are true. This is who Jesus is. Imagine the torment that the king of the universe is suffering as those whom he created, now get this, and love mocked him with a crown of thorns pressed over his head, a purple robe draped over his wounded body, and they kneel before him and mock And yet every word that they say is true words because Jesus is this king and he provides no answer back to them. He suffers this mocking willingly. He actually went to Jerusalem knowing that he would suffer this mocking. Consider what Jesus says shortly before the triumphal entry in Mark 10, in verse 33 and 34. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And what will the Gentiles do? They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus knew what awaited him in Jerusalem and went anyway. King of the universe enters in to Jerusalem to the praise of his people and then is condemned with cruel mocking. And yet he goes anyway because his suffering was intended in our place. What's the personal connection here, church? It's it's that in our sin, we set ourselves up as the center of our universe. This is what sin truly is. All sin truly is idolatry. All sin is us saying, I know better than God. It's saying, I want to do things my way and not God's way. Thereby saying, I am king. So who is it that deserves the mocking of the Roman battalion? It's us. Because we are not king. We set ourselves up like one. We put ourselves in the center of our universe. Every time we sin, we say, I know better than God. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to follow my own path. And so what we deserve is to be mocked for this. 
What we deserve is to be ridiculed for this. We deserve people to put crowns of thorns on our head and to clothe us in cloaks that we do not deserve. And to say, look at you, king, who thinks yourself something that you are not. Jesus didn't deserve this, and yet he suffered it in our place, taking the ridicule that was due you and I on himself. Number four, the king crucified in our place. We see this in three parts. First, Jesus is helped on his way to the cross. Look at verse 21 and 20 through 23. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. By this point in the story, Jesus is unable to carry the beam himself. Those sentenced to crucifixion, wherever it would be in the Roman Empire, were sentenced and beaten inside of the city and would be strapped to the beam section of the cross, which they would then carry through the streets as people mocked them outside of the city. Crucifixions always took place outside of the city, most often outside of the main gate to the city, so that everyone coming and going into that city would know who's in charge, Rome. But Jesus, being beaten so badly, is unable at this point to carry his cross. And so what was known in his Roman conscription, that Roman soldiers could grab anyone off the street and make them do anything. And they do this with a man named Simon from northern Africa. That's the, the location that is given for his, his country. He has come in from that country for the Passover and unable to carry his cross. That, that, that beam is put on the shoulders of another. Just to slow down here for a couple of moments and notice some things Mark tells us that other gospel writers don't. First, Mark gives us further identification of who Simon was. The other gospel authors all identify him as Simon. But Mark tells us that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why? Why why is, is his children important? None of the other gospel authors tell us his children. Well, again, as earlier the audience that Mark is writing to matters. Again, Mark writing likely in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, recording the words of Peter in Rome to the Roman church. And in Romans 16, writing around that same time, the apostle Paul greets several people in the Roman church. And look at one of them, verse 13. Greet Rufus. Chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. <laughs> Why is Mark the only gospel author that identifies Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus? Because Mark's audience knew this guy. <laughs> Mark saves his dad. I'm not making this up. Ask him. He's sitting there. He likely saw it. Can you imagine a couple of decades later sitting in Rome, reading the story of the life of Jesus, knowing that it was your father who was conscripted, knowing that it was your father who bore the cross of Christ out of the gate to Golgotha. 
providing for us an image of discipleship. Where Jesus had said earlier in Mark 8, that if anyone is to come after me, he must do what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Simon becomes the first disciple to do exactly what Jesus had said. And I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to just give you my opinion for a minute. I don't think his name is by accident. There's another Simon, disciple of Jesus in the Bible, right? Jesus changed his name to Peter, but Peter's original name was Simon. Who's the one who first makes a profession of faith? Shortly before, by the way, Mark 8, Peter makes the first profession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. Then on that last night, he is the one full of bluster. If all of these abandon you, I will not, Simon says. And in this moment, after having denied Jesus three times in that courtyard, he is nowhere to be found. But another Simon is found who bears the cross of Jesus out of the gate as an image of discipleship, a physical picture of what it really means to follow Jesus. And Mark says, if you want to know this is true, ask your friend Rufus sitting right over here. He saw it. It was his dad. Then Jesus is mocked by those who crucify him. Verses 24 through 27 tell us, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the the inscription of the charge again against him read, the king of the Jews, there it is again, above his head, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus crucified as a common criminal but again, being identified as who he truly is. Even the inscription on his cross bore witness to the reality of Christ, the king. And a robber on the right and a robber on the left so that Isaiah fifty-three twelve could be fulfilled. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many and shall divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and making intercession for the transgressors. Now catch what Jesus is doing here, represented by the thief on the left and the thief on the right. Mark does not talk to us about the thief professing faith in Jesus. We find that in other gospel stories. There's another picture for us here in Mark. And here's the picture that Jesus fulfilling Isaiah 53, 12 is numbered with the transgressors so that he could make intercession for transgressors. Here, we have found ourselves in every place in this story. Here's where we are in this one. We are the thieves on the cross. We are the transgressors who are guilty, hanging with Jesus. And yet Jesus hung in our place. I think there's another picture of discipleship here that we go back to some of these last moments of Jesus with his disciples before the triumphal entry. Mark chapter 10, they're on their way to Jerusalem. And James and John in Mark chapter 10 come to Jesus and say, teacher, we we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
Listen, while the thief on his right and left are not the final fulfillment of the final eschatological fulfillment of Jesus' words in Mark 10, like Simon carrying the cross, the robbers provide for us a picture. James and John had no idea what they were asking when they said, when you're coming into your kingdom, let us be on your left and right. Because who was on the left and right of Jesus? Robbers representing every one of us deserving of death. Finally, Jesus is mocked again, once again. Mark emphasizes for us over and over the mocking of Jesus, both by his accusers and onlookers. Pick up in verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saves others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. There was a common thinking in first century Israel based off of writing that was done during what we know as the intertestamental period time between the closing of the Old Testament about 400 years before Jesus and, and the coming of John there is no scripture written in that period, but there are other Jewish writings that they did not hold as sacred like the Old Testament, but they did hold as important. One of them is known as the, is the Book of Wisdom or the Wisdom of Solomon. And in the Wisdom of Solomon, we read these verses. Let us see if his words be true and let us prove what shall happen in the end of him. For if the just man be the son of God, he will help him and deliver him from the hands of his enemies." It's this teaching that the high priests and those passing by are relying on. Here's the idea, that if you really are righteous, you'd be able to come down off that cross. If you're not righteous, then you're getting what you deserved. This was the thinking of the day, that poor people deserve to be poor because they had done something wrong, that sick people deserve to be sick because they had done something wrong, that crucified people deserve to be crucified because they had done something wrong. And this is the final mockery that they speak towards Jesus. Come on down there, righteous man, and then we will believe. And all who pass by, and even those being crucified with him, mock him with these words. King. And yes, he was a king. Going to the cross in the place of those who mock him. So what? Only through trusting in the king who took our place can we find forgiveness of sin. This is, this is the lesson. This is the point. We're not just told this so we'll feel sorry for Jesus. I was, years ago, I was in a West African village. We were showing the Jesus film, which had been dubbed into their language. And they're watching this film, and, and this is a Muslim country, and Muslims know of Jesus. They just don't know the story of Jesus, the true story of Jesus. And we were a good way into the film, and, and a, a uh, teenage boy walks up, and he had sat for about five minutes. And by that point, we were in the beating of Jesus and in the crucifixion of Jesus, and he had missed all the other parts. And he comes up, and he's just standing there horrified, and you just see this horrified look on his face. And he looks over and his language was translated for me. He asks this question, why are they being so mean to this guy? 
What an opportunity, right? We're not just told the story so we'll feel bad for Jesus. We're told this story so we'll ask, why did this have to happen? It happened so that we could trust that the king could save us by taking our place. The apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 tells us this of the death of Jesus. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The king stood trial. The king suffered both physically and mentally. The king was led to a cross and nailed to it, my friend, in your place so that our cry, save us, O Lord, Hosanna, would be answered. And it is answered for all who come to faith in Jesus alone, bringing to you the blessing of Abraham so that we too might be the people of God. You can never earn this on your own but it is something that Jesus earned for you in your place. Yes, salvation is earned, but not by you. It was earned by Jesus. And this is the foundation of our faith. We're going to stand here in a moment and sing together an old hymn. The verses of this hymn read, Man of sorrow, what a name. For the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood. Where? In my place. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. (laughs) We are those who are vile and helpless and guilty. He is spotless lamb of God, was he offering what to us? Full atonement. Oh, church, this is our cry. Save us, oh God, we pray. And that prayer is answered by King Jesus on a cross in our place. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you humble us now? Because in our pride and arrogance, we seek to set ourselves as the center of the universe. And yet the one who is the son of God, who is the center of the universe, stood trial, bore contempt, was mocked and beaten and crucified in our place. Let us not only know that is true in our minds, let us believe that is true with every fiber of our being and in our souls know that we could never save ourselves, but that King Jesus gave himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might be saved. Let that be the belief of every man, woman, boy, and girl here today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Before we sing, let me just say, if you have never believed this and would like to believe it today, you can, right? There's nothing you need to do. Believe it and be saved. We would just ask you to come and tell us so we can help you follow Jesus in those pictures of discipleship. At the end of the service, I'll be at the Connect desk. Come and find me. Let's talk about how you can follow Christ after believing the gospel. But church, 
we stand now and worship the king who died in our place. Would you stand with me?